0: Everybody has a favourite goal of all time.
1: Oh, you're what a head, son, what a head. <laughs> I love that goal.
0: For me. It's Zidane in the final of the Champions League in 2002 welcome back then it's 16 degrees celsius so i'm sitting in my living room i am glued to the television set we're watching real madrid against bayer leverkusen their last chance to come up with a trophy this season it's the 45th minute Roberto roberto carlos charges down the wing for real madrid good ball for roberto carlos he's up against the leverkusen fullback and it doesn't look like there's any space for him to pass anywhere and yet somehow off the tip of his boot he manages to cross the ball diagonally backwards to just outside the box and who is there? Zidane is there in so much space. I knew when Zidane crossed the halfway line that this was going to be a goal. I couldn't quite see how it was all going to come together, but I knew it was going to be a goal long before I could see how all the pieces of the move were going to slot together. And there, in that singular moment, they do. The ball comes to Zidane, above head height, and then the most exquisite, athletic, unbelievable balletic movement follows. Tracing a fantastic arc, his leg raised above his head, he pirouettes and smashes the ball at the top of its trajectory. It flew off his boot like a streak of white lightning. For me, it was an out of body experience. I was floating on the ceiling, lifted up out of my armchair, looking down on the television. As I settled back down to earth, I thought, ooh, nothing much compares to this. I'm David Goldblatt, and this is Game of Our Lives, a show about football, the global game. There'll be a lot more goals on this show, and a lot more out-of-body experiences, I hope, because moments like the Zidane volley back in 2002 remind me that football can let you see the world through fresh eyes. And not just on the pitch, by the way. Football, or soccer if you like, is the most popular sport on the planet. Everywhere you go, it is shaped by economic and political power. Everywhere you go, it's shot through with the same divisions that structure the rest of our lives. Gender, ethnicity, class. And everywhere it shows up in a culture. Music, literature, and in film. One of my favourite football movies is Zidane, a 21st century portrait. 17 cameras are turned on Zidane for the entirety of a game between Real Madrid and Villarreal. And then it's edited into real time. 90-minute game, you get a 90-minute movie. And all of it focused on Zidane. The film was a revelation to me. Completely changed how I watched the game.
1: I think... uh... It it is mostly boring to see one single player over 90 minutes game. So you won't be making
0: remaking Zidane? No, certainly not. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's my guest today, the
0: filmmaker Werner Herzog. And yes, maybe he hasn't seen the light on Zidane yet, but he is definitely qualified to talk about cinema. Herzog has made dozens of films of the most extraordinary range. Everything from the mental breakdown of the conquistadors in the Amazonian forest to competitive cattle auctioneering in the Midwest. I asked him to come on the show to talk about both film and football because as well as being an exceptional filmmaker, Werner Herzog is also a huge football fan and, he argues, a reasonable centre-forward. And when he watches football, he sees a lot more than just the game. Let me ask you about the actual televising of it. I mean... The way in which which football looks on the television today is very, very different from when both of us first encountered it. As a cinematographer, what do you make of the way in which the spectacle is staged and filmed?
1: I think there are too many cameras nowadays, and it makes me confused to watch a game when the camera is switching too often. I like to see... uh, a wider shot of the field where you can see how, let's say, Bayern is... Getting possession of the ball, how they start to organize a quick counter attack, and how the entire field all of a sudden is moving. And I see, I like to see with my peripheral vision what is the opponent's team doing. How do they move their entire team uh, a little bit more to the left or to the right? Or, uh, how do they form themselves in a in a defensive pattern? So I, I like to see certain patterns that emerge very quickly. So you're too don't, many close-ups? I don't like close-ups that much. Sometimes I like close-ups when, when there's uh, disputed moments. Was this a real foul that made the referee uh, award a penalty, for example? And I like uh, replays of certain moments that, that are interesting, but replays normally give you replays of the goals or of the key fouls that injured one of the players. So I, I like to see replays of... Uh, Of moments that are very special, that may not lead to anything. But uh, I I love to see that.
0: Tommy, you're a Bayern fan, clearly. You grow up in a small village, you know, some way outside of Munich, not necessarily easy as a young boy to get to the football.
1: I wonder, how did you first encounter football? basically when my family moved to Munich after 11 years of complete isolations in the most remote mountain valley. So uh, there was no football club, nothing. But the moment we were in Munich, we went to the stadium. And I do remember some very, very remarkable moments at this small stadium of 1860 Munich, which had a capacity of twenty-two, twenty-four thousand. 24,000. We were very much enthralled uh, with uh, 1860, and they actually became champions of Germany in the mid 60s sometime. And I really loved the club. It was more the the proletarian sort of uh, audience that they had. Bayern was always considered as a rich kids' club, and uh, and the Munich um, bastard child of Hollywood. And in the 50s at some time towards the end of the 50s, there was great excitement because for the first time a Brazilian team would come and it was uh, FC Santos. And uh, we somehow got tickets and got into the packed stadium and for the first time I see Brazilian football. They had all white trousers, white jerseys, they were in all white. And uh, I think... Eight of the players were black, among them Pelé, 16 years old. And I immediately was mesmerized by by this kid, uh, Pelé. And I remember him because his shirt was too short. And there was a gap between his pants and his... uh, And his
0: shorts. And And his shorts and his top.
1: Yes. And I thought he was wearing a, a dark belt, (laughs) <laughs> Until I looked, I, I looked. Well, his uh, his shirt was just too short. Probably in traveling, this team traveling, they left his shirt behind, and he got a shirt from a youth player, a child from the children's team, and uh, it was something I had never seen before. After in my life, I think uh, Santos won nine to one. They scored one after the other, and I saw something like magic, a kid, 16-year-old, scoring one goal after the other and and doing things on the field that I'd never thought would be possible.
0: And what did, I mean, everybody else, this is the first time anyone's seen a Brazilian team, I imagine.
1: I believe so, yes. Well, for Munich, it was the first time that a Brazilian team ever late in in the stadium. And
0: was that the end of your relationship with TSV? Is that the point at which you then move over to Bayern?
1: No, it came somehow naturally because uh, I I was not a real uh, hardcore fan of any club until today. I'm not a hardcore fan. It's kind of foreign for me, this notion of being a fan of a club. I I like to watch them and today. I watch German Bundesliga on my TV here in Los Angeles. Uh, Well, there's a bouquet of uh, teams playing. Uh, You see on a weekend two or three Bundesliga teams playing. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's a little bit connection back to my own country. I was
0: really struck watching... um The lovely self-portrait that you filmed, oh, 20, 30 years ago, Portrait Werner Herzog. And it begins at the Munich Beer Fest, and there you are enjoying the atmosphere, and you fly off in a plane at one point, and you remark casually that you don't really like crowds very much. And I wonder, A, is that still the case? And B, how do you feel about football crowds?
1: Well, I was not specific enough. I do like crowds that have one single purpose, watching a football game. And whenever, for example, I arrive in a city in England, mostly London, I would try to see the next big football game. And I, I would love to, could be any team that's just playing on the weekend, because I, I understand immediately the country and the people and how they, they they're, they're collective soul. And in English uh, stadiums, uh, it's particularly beautiful because they have this very ancient chanting. And uh, there is something about Scottish and English crowds, which is, um, and I say it with necessary caution, barbaric. And meaning barbaric doesn't mean like uh, uh, barbarism of war atrocities. I mean barbarism in terms of of early, let's say, battles of Scottish tribal people against God knows whom, a a form of uh, knowing where you come from. This is uh, my tribe and it's Celtic Glasgow and the other one is Glasgow Rangers. And there are two tribal groups meeting each other in chant, chanting obscenities at each other. And I've seen similar things in Peru at the national stadium. Uh, At the time when I was there, the stadium was a misconstruction. It was way too steep. The stands were at an angle so steep that, of course, catastrophes happened. But it was good to see the audience. And there was a particular sort of sport for the audience. I had uh, those who had seats had straw mats to sit on it Mm -hmm. and uh, when one part of the audience was discontent they would fling these cushions onto the field like frisbees and you saw you saw them thousands of them all of a sudden filling the air sometimes they would set them on fire And you would see, for example, uh, all of a sudden, part in the stands were all looking at one man and howling in delight because he would pee into a condom and then swing it over his head and toss it into the part of the stands of the opponents. And and these kind of projectiles would go to and fro. So there was a a particular Latino uh, sort of joy. Scatology
0: in this. yes. So
1: doesn't that Verda, doesn't that make you want to get your camera out? I mean when you see that
0: stuff, do you not think this is something I want to film, something you want to capture? Crowds look amazing. They have a kind of collective and complex energy to them. And conventional TV coverage of the crowds is incredibly poor. I just wondered if, you know. In a parallel universe, if you were filming crowds, what would you want to capture? How would you think about going about the, that? The
1: collective joy and the collective tribalism. And the collective chanting. But again, like, I would not like to do a film where you only focus your cameras on crowds. In certain moments, I want to train the camera on the pitch, on the field. And I see there's, there's something really outrageous going on. And there's a penalty cut. And from now on, I want to see the crowds for the next five minutes. You see, that's that the crowd has to be in context. Has to be in context what is going on on the field itself.
0: The other context it seems to me you need to put crowds into is the city. That they're in, sure. because there's the whole process of arriving at the stadium. There's the place of the stadium within the urban landscape. There's the process, which I find really interesting, of how stadiums fill and at what rate and in yeah. what place. Because before the game, yeah, you know what it's like. There's two hours of you know of gathering and collecting and meeting and smoking and drinking and. You seem to like filming complex landscapes, both natural landscapes, but also complex human landscapes. I mean, again, how might one... I mean, what's what, what's in there for the filmmaker yeah. there, do you think?
1: And afterwards, uh, being in the pub after the game with <laughs> sure. part of the audience and, sure. and the debates and the still chanting going on in the pub itself... Um, yeah, it's, it's a very strange and beautiful and unusual world. But of course, it has very ancient roots, the kind of, uh, gladiator uh, arena. And of course, the audience is as much an essence as a game on the field. And we have seen games where FIFA, for example, would not allow any audiences, let's say for the Champions League game, uh, Bel- for Belgrade or so, because Spectators in Belgrade would be utterly racist and they would throw bananas onto the field when the wing player, a a black wing player would sprint past. They would do monkey sounds and throw bananas. Rightfully so, not only should partisan Belgrade in such a case be, be somehow banned from for a decade, but they would ban any audience for the next game. And you see a Champions League game and there are empty stands and all of a sudden it's as, as if it were nothing. Yeah, it's meaningless, it's, it's, isn't it's it? Meaningless. It's meaningless. It becomes utterly meaningless.
0: It's weirdly eerie, and to be able to hear the players on yeah. the pitch and to hear the shouts, I mean, and you can even hear, you know, the ball kind of being clipped yeah. suddenly, yes. really clearly. And yet, as you say, it's completely it's vacuous. It's yes. yeah, yeah. I mean, there is few things more sort of melancholy, yeah, I think, than that moment.
1: And I, I also liked very much, but I have seen it only in Lima, with uh, Cristal. I was taken into the uh, dressing room by Gutendorf, the, the coach, and I would be with the players in the in the dressing room. And in Peru, very strange because, for example, one of them, uh, actually very very intimidating player, he looked like Sonny Liston, the That's boxer. That's an
0: intimidating prospect.
1: <clears throat> He looked like Sonny Liston, and they called him the surgeon, the audiences, because he would deliver his opponents to the surgery room. (laughs) But he was the most devoutly sunk in prayer. He had erected a little altar with a little statue of the Virgin, and he would put uh, candles around it and would kneel in prayer for at least half an hour before the game started. The other players would psych themselves up and the strangest thing was, there was some sort of a ritual. Uh, It may sound as if I make this up. They had had their toilets, they had a restroom and showers. But before the game, many of the players would just lean their forehead against the wall and pee against the wall. So, shortly before they left for the field, just a minute before they left for the field, at least six, seven of them peed against the wall. So it was steaming with urine. <laughs> And then they left. Do you know, totally, I have
0: no problem believing that. I mean, bizarrely, urination—I have uh, seen it—has quite it. a big place in global football. I mean, certainly in Africa, it's an essential element of all sorts of is to have a bit of urine. And as you say, the old uh, condom game where you fill it up with urine—that was the standard form in England, but with bottles I before there were I, actually, I, okay. you know, anybody actually had toilets in those places, yeah. and you couldn't leave the stands. Um, and then there's the famous case of a, uh, a Brazilian president of a football club back in the 50s, who um, was convinced that if his dog peed on the players, then that made good luck. So he would bring his dog into the dressing room to then pee over his own players until there was a kind of strike. But.
1: You know, ritual, yeah, the rituals are wonderful. Ritual and, you see and in, magic. You know, you see island. it in Africa more Absolutely. than anywhere else. You see it in Africa. I've seen it in in Ghana. The Voodoo uh, priest somehow performing rituals uh, behind the goal and on the goal line, and everybody was was just uh, howling in delight and encouraging him. And the uh, and it was before the game. The so amazing, serious,
0: serious. Sure. I mean, it's a serious living tradition of magic and religi- yeah. religious practice. I mean, it's amazing that the Confederation of African Football are constantly trying to ban it. And their argument, so- of course, is, is that it makes Africa look, in inverted commas, backward. But I look at it and go, well, John Terry has to listen to the same CD every time he plays and put, you know, plasters on his left foot first and 18 other rituals. So it's yeah. like...
1: And how What's they the step difference? on the field with a left foot and touch the lawn with the right hand and uh, all sorts of things that you see in uh, English teams, for
0: example. Of course, if it actually, as they often say in Africa, if it actually made any difference, yeah. every game would be a draw, yeah. right? But, the, you know, it's not a performance-enhancing yeah. drug as far as I can see. Yeah. It's part of, you know, football's got to be show and it's got to be ritual, it seems to me. It's nothing. Yeah. It, then it just is 11 against yeah. 11 and it is just the ball in the back of the net. And for it to be elevated into anything else, that sort of ritual is an absolutely central yeah. component of that.
1: It's a essence of, of the people.
0: From uh, a completely different perspective, you came at football in, lo and behold, The Connected World, which is your movie about the internet. And along the way, you meet up with the Robot World Cup folks, who I recall envisage building robots good enough to beat the best humans by 2050. I mean, clearly something bigger is at stake. This is about robots dealing with nuclear power disasters and a thousand other uses for them. But let's just imagine for a moment that they actually do get really good. I mean, and the way technology has developed in the last 30 yeah. years, there's no reason to imagine they wouldn't. How did you would you feel about watching a World Cup that's robots versus people or robots versus robots? Are we still watching football? Are we still doing the same thing? Or have we moved into something else at that point?
1: It's hard to imagine would I enjoy it or not. Um, I would probably marvel at the technical... Uh, advances that we have made in just a few nights ago I saw on news a robot that normally when they walk or they jump they uh, fall over they topple over and they showed a robot human shaped basically uh, which would hop on a bench and then hop over another bench and then do a somersault backwards and not topple over And I thought, my goodness, this is totally stunning. And uh, probably the prediction that you might have robotic football players is not completely far-fetched.
0: But if we do, I mean, how do we feel about watching it? I am wondering. I mean, I think it is completely... Completely feasible, but I wonder—you know—it's a bit like watching video games, isn't it? You're sort exactly. of watching I the brilliance see, of someone else's program. Yes,
1: but I want to see Nobby Styles uh, with his missing teeth, right? With his missing human imperfection—missing teeth and and leaving deep plowing marks on the field and when he misses the ball in his boots sprinting over to the stands and showing his bare ass <laughs>
0: <laughs> verna do you have a favorite goal or a moment in your footballing life that just stays with you more than any other
1: i would have uh, quite a few favorite goals but let's you're have, allowed
0: more than one
1: uh, we're generous I, I do remember a goal. I think by George Best. The goal, the goal area uh, crowded by defenders, and he's something like maybe ten meters away from the goal, and he somehow flicks his foot. And in the crowd, you see two or three defenders rise, jumping up, blocking it. But he doesn't. He doesn't shoot. It was a trick flick, and the moment. They come down, back of their feet. He lobs a ball into the goal. It's so
0: lovely. And it's it's humor. just stunning. stunning. Humor, guile, elegance, all sort of combined together with also a kind of quite cheeky sense of humor. There are a few human physical moments, I think, that yeah. can communicate so much in such a tiny compressed moment of action. Right. So final question, Werner. If there is a... If there is going to be a Werner Herzog movie, when's what would it what would it look like?
1: Probably uh, Africa, a game that is preceded by rituals, maybe even interrupted by rituals, uh, where there is an entire two hundred person choir singing hymns. <laughs> Well-trained, like in church. Okay, that, uh, that happens. People drumming and dancing in the stands. Uh, a game that is completely out of the ordinary where you see magic on the field. It's. I, I want to see the 16-year-old Pele back in the 50s playing in Munich again, something like that. And that was pure, total magic, and uh, it's still with me.
0: Well, I hope we all get the chance to see it, Werner. Thank you very much for answering our questions and being with us. Thank you, yeah. Hollywood, are you listening? Let's get that movie made. By the way, turns out Pelé was actually 19 years old in that game, but I'm sure it was still magical. Seriously, though, I actually saw the kind of game Werner's talking about a couple of years ago. I was in Lagos, Nigeria, the most extraordinary city, the most extraordinary place to go and see football. I headed out to a gigi stadium, a little suburb in the north of the city. Inside the stadium, there's a brass band playing, there are Pentecostal ladies in their Sunday best in the stands, and the sound of African gospel fills the air.
1: Uh, A stadium is not a burial ground, is it, David?
0: That's Godwin Ennekena. So that's why we have our band that plays purely gospel tunes and the people that dance to these tunes. He was the director of Mountain of Fire and Miracles FC. They were the first team from Lagos to make it to the top football league in Nigeria in a decade. And they were founded by an evangelical church from the suburbs. It's a pretty remarkable tale. And we're going to hear about it next week. In the meantime, check out our website, gameofourlives.fm, where you'll find all sorts of extras, including my five favourite football movies. If you liked Game of Our Lives, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, tell a friend, tell your mum. This show is a production of Jetty Studios. Our senior producer is the wonderful Raja Shah. Our producer and sound designer is Meredith Hodnot. Our editors are Casey Miner and Carnish Thoreau. Kiana Mogadem does the social media. Graylin Brashear does the audience development. Graphic design is from Sophie Feller. Our producer, Lacey Roberts, helps us with everything we need. And very special thanks to the man himself who set this whole thing in motion, Tony Karen. Our music is from Bang Data, and you can hear more from them at bangdata.com. Our executive producer is Judy Kane, and our general manager is Kaysar Campbell. I'm David Goldblatt, and we'll be back next week.